He was now a young man and began to study more about the Christian faith, finally becoming a priest and later even a bishop. So this amazing conversion experience was just the beginning of a new life for him. Later I'll tell you the rest of the story towards the end of the teaching. The gospel passage I read is known as the story of the prodigal son, where the word prodigal just means wastefully or recklessly extravagant. We can be wasteful without doing all the things the younger son said, did in the story. But this passage is not just about being wasteful. It's even more about repentance and forgiveness. So maybe it should be called the story of the forgiving father. When we hear the passage, we, we may see ourselves as a son who, wrongly, who wronged our, our loving father through living sinful lives. Whatever our own particular sins may have been, we earnestly long for and even expect a loving God who will throw his arms out wide and come running to greet us and welcome us. And this is what our awesome, loving God would do, as Jesus tells us in the parable. In our modern society, living more than 20 centuries after Luke wrote this gospel, it is so easy to miss some of the things that would have been obvious to Jesus' listeners in the first century Israel. Although much of that culture still remains in the Middle East today, life is different then to now. Life was different, sorry. People would have been totally shocked at the behavior of Jesus describes or found it unbelievable. Maybe not so much by the behavior of the son, as it all would have known very rude children. Rather, it is the father's behavior that would have shocked them the most. If a son were to ask for his inheritance from his father, who was still alive, it is the same as a son saying, you're worthless to me as a father. If you were dead, at least I'd get some money out of the relationship. Why don't you just pretend you're dead and give me the money now? That way I don't have to pretend to mourn at your funeral. Not the kind of sentiment a father would like to hear at any time. Dishonoring the family was a very serious thing. In many, many cultures, including the one Jesus was addressing, disrespect at that level was punishable by death at the hands of the father. Leviticus 29 says, If anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, and his blood will be on his own head. Now we consider that rather extreme, but regardless of whether we agree with the mosaic penalty or not, that was the law of the culture at the time Jesus told the parable. By verse 15, Jesus' Jewish listeners were no doubt expecting the story to end. In fact, that's, that's you know, at that point. But there's a similar, there's a similar second, second century Jewish story that ends at that point, in fact. The son gets what he deserves, is reduced to the low, horrible level of feeding the most unclean animals in Jewish culture, the pigs, and at that point, the son is cut off from the Jewish community and from any financial support it would have otherwise offered him. But that was a Jewish story from the second century. That's not the story that we have because that's not from our Bible. In that culture, fathers are highly respected, revered, and adult men of any social standing are considered with regal stature, like a king. They don't run. Children and servants may run. 
but not an adult man, and not a father who has children to run for him. Therefore, a returning son would be brought to the father, not the other way around. And at no time would a grown Middle Eastern man start running with his arms out to greet someone, especially a son who had shamed him and his family as gracefully, grace, sorry, disgracefully and publicly as this one had. The father would have to lift his garment up above his knees in order to run. Can you imagine that? A grown man trying to do that while reaching out his arms to his son at the same time. Few things would look less dignified than that. Yet that's exactly what the father in the parable did. When he reached his son, he hugged him and called for the best clothes, a ring and sandals for his returning son. The best robe in the house would have belonged to the father himself. And the ring would have been the family signet ring, a symbol of the young man's reinstatement as sonship in a wealthy household, even after spending a third of what the father had spent his entire life acquiring. He's the younger son, so he gets one third. The older son, who stayed behind, would, would get, when the father died, the rest, two thirds. So the father is saying that he will take him back, not as a slave or a servant, but as a son. I'm sure this is the type of father we want God to be. Someone who doesn't care what anyone else thinks and will come running to welcome us home. And the lost son reminds us of ourselves so much. Verse 17 tells us that it was not how bad the son's life had been that made the young man realize his error. It was how good his father was. George Whitfield's ministry in England in the mid-1700s saved a young man called Robert Robinson from a very sinful life. Soon afterwards, a 23-year-old Robert Robinson wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Fount is like fountain. You, know, you may or may not have heard the hymn before. It's rather old. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. However, the story takes a very sad twist in that Robert, Robert Robinson later drifted away from the streams of mercy he had written about and just like the prodigal son went into a life of sin and corruption. Then one day he was riding in a stagecoach sitting next to a young woman who was deeply engrossed reading her book. She ran across a verse she thought was beautiful and asked Robert Robinson what he thought of it. And she read the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Prone is sort of uh, inclined that way, likely. Yeah. Um, Robert Robinson burst into tears and he said, Madam, I'm the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I, if I had them to enjoy the feeling I had then. She was greatly surprised, but reassured him that the streams of mercy mentioned in his so song still flowed. Robert Robinson was so deeply touched that he turned his wandering heart back to the Lord, and he was restored to full fellowship. <laughs> oh, right. But there is another son, however. In the story, there's another son. The one who might have, we might have almost ignored. We may think of him as the one trying to prevent the father from welcoming us back. Jesus does not say whether that son comes into the party or not. 
and this had to be a huge party, a calf would have been enough to feed half the village. The father explains that the celebration is for all the family to take part in, as a lost son was also a lost brother. Notice that the brother refers to him as this son of yours and not this brother of mine. Does that stubborn brother see the father's point and join them inside? No. Does he keep his miserable attitude and stay outside? Yes. We expect that the father went back in, but we can't be sure about the brother. His own pride and stubbornness have pushed him from the father's banquet. That brother symbolizes the religious Pharisees whom Jesus implied had pushed themselves out of heaven and away from God. They believed that only certain people were worthy of God's love. The others were barred from the temple. The prostitutes, tax collectors and so-called scum of the earth who Jesus ministered to were not even allowed to enter the temple. The Pharisees considered them unworthy and a waste of time and resources. But Jesus saw them as children of God. Remember, God has no grandchildren. All his children are precious, and those who stray but come back to him are greeted with, by him with joy. I'm sure, however, most of us would probably be shocked to discover that the father sees us as the older brother instead of the lost son. And most of us are living up to that role. Think about it. If you're here in this room, there's a good chance you've already come back to the Father through Jesus. You've repented for your sins and accepted Christ's sacrificial death to bring you eternal life. But I'm going to ask you some very serious questions. How many of us would be really pleased to learn that Osama bin Laden prayed for forgiveness and received it and will go to heaven when he dies? Or that Saddam Hussein accepted Christ's forgiveness just before he was hanged. How would we feel if we got to heaven and discovered Hitler living comfortably there in full glory? If those ideas make us feel a little uncomfortable, we are more like the older brother than we'd like to admit. We set the bar for our own salvation, just not so low that other sinners can get over it. For example, a pastor asking professing Christians about helping in the prison ministry, only one person out of two whole churches he ran even asked to give it a try. Most re replied, I do a lot of things for Jesus, but I'm not doing anything for them, and handed the application back to the pastor without even reading it. Others told him, those people aren't worth saving. He had similar difficulties with getting volunteers to help the homeless, although people did have a little bit more sympathy for them and compassion. But they still didn't help. They just felt more sorry for them. For some reason, after God lovingly welcomes us back into heaven, we tend to believe that makes us his chosen protectors of heaven, to enforce the heavenly dress code, as it were, like a bouncer at the uh, nightclub, to keep the riffraff from cluttering up the lobby. We act as though only certain types of people with certain types of sin are worthy of God's forgiveness and others not. We each view the minimum level of receiving God's grace a little differently, but generally it goes something like this. We set Mother Teresa at the top of the scale, we put Hitler at the bottom, we put ourselves somewhere in the middle. And we celebrate our 
salvation on meter, a measure of salvation, to allow God to forgive people at our level and above, but not below. We measure others below that level. We use it to justify our disdain for them. In our minds, everyone who falls below a certain predetermined level in our salvation meters doesn't deserve God's grace. What we fail to realize is that none of us deserves it. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. Jesus died for all of us, every one of us, so that we wouldn't have to die for our sins. Anyone who accepts that gift from God is saved. As Paul mentions in our New Testament reading today, everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Whatever they were has been before whatever they were before has been changed. Whether we approve of them or not, in Jesus' eyes, each of us is worth dying for. So how can we think of someone else as being worthless? If we saw Christ in each one of us, we'd treat each other differently. I'll tell you another story, interesting, I think. A young lady named Sally had an experience in a Bible school given by her professor, who was well known for his uh, elaborate object lessons. So this lady was in Bible school with other Bible scholars. One particular day, Sally walked into the class and saw a big target on the notice board at the back. On the table nearby was a set of darts. You know darts that you throw? And the professor told the students to draw a picture on pieces of paper he was giving out of someone they disliked or someone who made them angry. And he would allow them to throw darts at the person's picture. Put them on the target, throw darts at the picture. Sally's friend drew a picture of someone who had stolen her boyfriend. Another friend drew a picture of his little brother who did not get on with at all well. Sally drew a picture of a former friend putting a lot of detail into her drawing, even drawing pimples on her face. Sally was pleased with the overall effect she had achieved. It really looked like her friend. The class lined up and began to throw darts. They stuck them on the wall, and they, the class lined up and began to throw darts. Some of the students threw their darts with such force that the targets were ripped apart. Sally looked forward to her turn, but she was disappointed when the professor said, sorry, we're out of time, and asked them all to sit back down again. As Sally th sat thinking at how angry she was because she'd not had a chance to throw the darts at the target, the professor began removing the target from the wall. Underneath the target was a picture of Jesus, and a hush fell over the whole room. The students viewed the mangled picture of Jesus. Holes and jagged marks covered his face, his eyes were pierced, and the professor just read the words from Matthew 25:40. As the king will tell you, I assure you, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. No other words are necessary. The students were in tears, focusing only on the picture of Christ. So how do we feel about the least of these? Do we welcome sinners into the body of Christ? Or do we storm out of God's kingdom in a huff? because we think he's offering salvation to the wrong kind of sinners. In one of my son's uh, churches he used to go to, a number of years ago now, two transvestites, you know, men dressed as women, came into the church. After the service, a long-standing deacon said, 
a deacon of the church said, if they are allowed in this church, my family will leave. The pastor sadly said to him, well, I'm sorry, we must say goodbye then. You have your salvation, but these men need theirs. So we can see ourselves as both the younger son and the older brother. But we also have a third calling, to be the father. Rembrandt, John, John likes to talk about painters. Rembrandt produced a painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And this deeply intrigued a Roman Catholic priest called Henry Nguyen, so much so that he wrote a book about the spiritual implications of that parable, based on the perspective he gained just from looking at that painting for days and days on a visit to St. Petersburg in Russia. And he wrote, As the returned child of God living in the Father's house, God's joy is mine to claim, but there is more. A child does not remain a child. A child becomes an adult. When the prodigal son returns home, he returns not to remain a child, but to claim his sonship and to become the father himself. So the prodigal son should become like the father. He should be forgiving in the same way. All right. Oh, that's good. I hadn't seen that. Jesus himself, when asked by his disciples how they should pray, included the command that we ask the father to forgive us just as we forgive others. When we can honestly wish someone well who has hurt us, we are maturing and growing past the level of the older brother and becoming like the father. As Henry Nguyen wrote, Rembrandt portrays the father as the man who has transcended, that means going above and beyond, the ways of his children. His own loneliness and anger may have been there, but they have been changed. This is who we have to become. We see it as clearly as we see the immense beauty of the Father's compassion. Can we grow past the younger and elder son stage to reach the maturity of the compassionate Father? I think we should really try. There's a lot of masculine imagery here, and I may, it may be difficult to women, for women to relate the idea of becoming sons and fathers, but in fairness, if men have to accept the idea of being the bride of Christ, then I think... Um, I'm hoping women can accept the idea of being fathers and sons for the purpose of the parable. It's interesting that the father describes his lost son's condition as having been lost but now found, dead but now alive. Those are the spiritual conditions of every sinner who comes to the father through faith in Jesus Christ. And you can read about that in St. John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 24, and the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. In our gospel passage today, the prodigal son was lost. But Jesus says in the gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way. The prodigal son was ignorant, but Jesus says, I am the truth. And in verse 24, the son was dead, but Jesus says, I am the life. There's a, there's a, parable, there's a parallel between the prodigal son coming to the father and our coming to the father through Christ. There's only one way to come to the Father, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So let us get back to our story of the escaped teenage slave. I, I hope you haven't forgotten about that. It's a long time ago. The teenage slave, but right at the beginning, who managed to return home. His decision to try to escape was a result of a vision he had from God the night before he left, telling him that there would be a ship 
So he traveled the 200 mile distance and found indeed that ship that was there going back to his home country of Britain, leaving Ireland. So he was a, he was a, um, he was in Britain and he was taken as a slave to Ireland and now he's returning back to Britain shortly and he reached the pier there. Patrick, that's his name, now a bishop, about 30 years later, received another vision from God calling him to return to Ireland, the place where he'd been sold into slavery and suffered as a boy at the hands of the Druid masters. He was now expected not only to forgive them, but to actively work to bring them into the same banquet the Father had welcomed Patrick to er into earlier. The Druids had control over most of Ireland, threatening local villages with curses or bad spells against their crops, health, fertility, if the maidens and other offerings from the people were considered not good enough by the Druid leaders, pillaging village to village. As Patrick brought the good news to Jesus Christ and salvation to the local kings of their tribes in each village, they saw that the bad spells of the Druids were no match for the good news or good spells, gospels, of Jesus. They welcomed these good spells or gospels, God spells, they used to be called God spells in Middle English, or gospels as we call them today. The saving power of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection was well understood by St. Patrick, whose own death is commemorated every 17th of March as a feast day. He himself had been lost and returned to his heavenly father. He chose to accept the father's decision to welcome his captors into the kingdom with him, and he brought the father's forgiveness to the Irish people and even the Druid leaders as Bishop of Ireland. He established more than 300 churches in Ireland and led more than 100,000 people to Christ. His ministry included many miracles, but one claim seems to need a bit of clarification. St. Patrick is credited with chasing the snakes out of Ireland. As an island nation, at the edge of the Arctic Circle, Ireland never had a history of snakes. The claim that Patrick chased all the snakes from Ireland is more spiritual than physical. It's no great feat to chase away things that aren't around, and that's hardly the sort of thing legends are made of. It's like me claiming to have chased all the alligators out of the river gate. There aren't any. However, the snake was an image and symbol used by the Druids, and it also represents Satan. Patrick's evangelical action spread Christianity throughout Ireland, replacing the Druid stranglehold on the country, chasing away all their power and symbols. Those snakes are the most venomous anyway, the most difficult to eliminate. If we truly accept Christ's message to us today, in today's parable, we'll understand that it's not a, all about us. It's about the glory of God and his kingdom and our obligation. Michael, we've been Thank you. Okay. So if we truly accept Christ's message to us in today's parable, we'll understand that it's not all about us. It's about the glory of God and his kingdom and our obligation, if we truly repent, to grow in his love so we can help bring his kingdom to others, even to those we don't think deserve it. And that's what makes it grace. God bless you all. Okay. Okay, and Jethro, I will ask him.
Hello, and welcome to New Hope Christian Fellowship with Pastor John Gilbert. Thank you for joining us today. We meet at Grove Hill Community Center at 11.30 p.m. in Hemel Hempstead. God bless you.